Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 16, we read, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In chapter 19, Jesus, or actually Matthew, is devoted a great deal of time to the subject of discipleship. And as we've been going through Matthew's gospel in this particular chapter, some people might have asked the question, well, why does the chapter devote so much time and attention to marriage and divorce and children? And I think that the answer is because discipleship begins in the home. Discipleship requires dependence and humility and love and obedience and the qualities and characteristics found in children are, are much more difficult to find among the rich, the independent, the self-sufficient, the selfish, the disobedient. We've learned that Jesus cares about your marriage. We learned that Jesus cares about your children. We also are learning that Jesus cares for us. He cares for you. In this passage, Jesus is approached by a rich young ruler. There's a series of questions asked and then answered. In those questions and in those answers were given further insight into the issues of discipleship and salvation. By the way, not all encounters with Jesus have happy endings. This is one of those rare occasions when a person comes in contact with Jesus, meets Jesus, questions Jesus, receives answers from Jesus, and is worse off for the experience. Can you imagine having the opportunity to meet Jesus? 
ask these very same questions and walk away sorrowful, unrepentant, unregenerate, unfulfilled. The first mistake lies in this man's failure to discern the true identity of Jesus. The second mistake lies in his failure to discern the destiny of Jesus. His third mistake is his inability to truly evaluate his own spiritual condition. This young man knows something is wrong. Something's not quite right. Something's missing from his life and his experience. Something that money and possessions and wealth and power and position can't fulfill. Yet he's either unwilling or unable to come to grips with his great sin and therefore his need for an even greater savior. This, of course, leads to the most tragic mistake of all. And that is when Jesus points to this young man the way of eternal life and the young man rejects the Savior's words. Come and follow me in verse 21. So look again in verse 16, the case of mistaken identity. Jesus, it, it says, now behold, one came and so to him, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I might have eternal life? The event must have had a profound effect on the disciples. For those of you who are familiar with your New Testament, you know that the story is mentioned here in Matthew, again in Mark, and also in Luke. In Luke 18, 18, we learn, now a certain ruler asked him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We know he's wealthy. We know he's young. We know he is in some sort of consequential position of power. It would seem that there were Jews who thought that some singular act might secure salvation. It's not an unusual position because people in our own culture and society entertain the idea that there might be some singular thing that they might do, some gift that they might give, some contribution to a, a hospital, some discovery for the cure of cancer or polio. Is there some specific thing that can be done that's going to ingratiate God and he'll want me and appreciate me and value me? The man is asking the right questions. And Jesus is going to give the right answer. In verse 17 it says, So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Jesus confronts him over the meaning of one word. Good. And I can see the disciples' faces falling, their mouths dropping. They're, 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 they're going, Jesus, Jesus. He's a rich, young ruler. We are a poor ministry, dependent 
on the generosity and gifts of others. Let's find an easy way to have him come, not a hard way to have him come. Why argue over one single word? Why does the precise meaning of words even matter? How can the meaning of one word alter your perception of what is important, of what is real, of what is valuable? Clearly, there's a hierarchy of behavior that you might deem good or inwardly moral or outwardly ethical. But is there a singular definition of good that can only apply to God? And Jesus, you know what he means. You know that you're good more than evil. But here's what we know from the Bible. The Bible says that human beings were designed for good. And damaged by evil. That there's something wrong. And Jesus wants to confront the young man. He makes that startling statement. What is it that you're doing? Why? You know that there's only singularly one being in the universe who's absolutely good. It leads us to some difficult Things, you'll note that even before Jesus is answering his question, he's drawing attention to himself as a part of the answer. Either I'm a man like any other man, bad at best, a sinner like the rest. Remember what the Bible says there's none good, no, not one. The prophet Isaiah said, All have sinned and have gone their separate ways. The Bible says that there's something wrong, something broken, something damaged. Jesus is suggesting either that he is a normal human being, bad at best, or he's a good God. Don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus is denying his divinity in this passage. He's not denying his divinity. What he's doing is he's calling into question the young man's theology and his view of Jesus and his view of God. All of these things are going to be important as we examine the question of salvation. You've heard me repeatedly say, It doesn't matter what you're right about if you're wrong about Jesus. And certainly the man respects Jesus. That's the reason why he's calling him good teacher. He bows. We know that from Mark's gospel. In Mark chapter 10, verse 17, it says, Now as he was going down the road, so we have the location from Mark, one came running. Apparently he's enthusiastic, energetic. He is motivated. He knelt before him, it says in Mark's gospel, chapter 10, verse 17. He knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? He's polite. He's sincere. He must believe that Jesus has some kind of authority, some kind of insight. Why else ask the question? I believe that this young man, like so many, comes to Jesus for insight and information, for direction and guidance, thinking, 
Is there something, is there something beyond just this religious thing that we call Judaism, the sacrifices in the temple? If I perform some good work, if I build some school, if I contribute some cash, if I establish some foundation, if I found some far-reaching charity to alleviate suffering, God will like me, God will approve of me, God will accept me. And again, Jesus draws the conversation immediately to himself. Why do you call me good? What do you really know about me? What do you really know about goodness? And now we're back to what I said earlier. I know that there must be such a thing as goodness. It seems to me that God created a good world. God created human beings. He placed them in a perfect environment. It seems that we were designed for something way more. And so we discover something. The man's first tragic mistake. He's confused about the identity of Jesus. And the truth is, if you're confused about the identity of Jesus, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to come to the right conclusions about the question that he's just asked. Jesus is dropping a massive hint. Tell me what you know about Jesus. Tell me what you think about Jesus. Tell me about his true identity. Jesus said, only God is good. So how do we respond to that person When asked the question, tell me what you think about Jesus, and their answer is, he's a good man. Quite possibly the best man, the ideal man, the perfect man. The first step in a right relationship with God is a proper understanding of Jesus. Richard Halverson said, quote, Jesus Christ is God's everything for man's total need, unquote. And that's a great statement because it incorporates fully everything that Jesus really is. In order to be saved, Jesus is going to have to be something more than a man. He even claims to be something more than a man. He claims to be the way, the truth, and the life. He makes relationship with him and fellowship with him as the one thing that determines what your eternity will look like. Jesus is dropping this massive hint. Remember the question, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Jesus says, Look at his answer. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. I'm sure that this is exactly what this young man had been told from the moment that he could understand human speech. You're Jewish. There's a revelation that's been given to us about who we are and what we are. He would have been told the stories in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. He would know about the giving of the law. He would have known about his people and the occupation of the country. In the Old Testament, we're told that those 
who keep the commandments have life. The law itself spoke. In Micah chapter 6 verse 8, you know the passage. He's shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. You know the rest. What but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk in humility with your God. You know how to have life. He's shown you. And in verse 18 it says, <laughs> which ones? Wouldn't it be wonderful if Jesus would have said, all of them? But he doesn't. He doesn't mention the first four commandments or five commandments. Jesus says, you shall not murder. I'm sure the young man went, check. You shall not commit adultery. Check. You shall not steal. Check. You shall not bear false witness. Check. You shall honor your father and mother. Check. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Check. Some of you may not have been able to hit all the check marks. I know I didn't. These commandments are the ones that were given by God to order and orchestrate and define our relationship with each other, Jesus quotes the commands, refers the man back to the law. Jesus does this, do you think, in order to suggest that keeping the law will save you? We know that that can't be true because no one's justified by the keeping of the law. No single person ever got saved by keeping the law. We know that what the law does is it reveals our lawlessness. Jesus refers this young man back to the law so that he can see his own sinful condition. The young man is aware that something's wrong. There's something that's not quite right. There's something, there's something that is keeping him from having assurance from God, the assurance that he has eternal life. And he says so in verse 20, the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Let's just for purposes of discussion concede that the young man has kept the rules, that he's observed the law. Almost certainly his good deeds would have outweighed his bad deeds. We might take umbrage with him and say, did you actually keep these laws in the way that the Bible reveals them? You've never made a mistake. You've never fallen short. You've never, ever, ever done anything that would cause anyone to believe that you'd broken these laws. Remember, Jesus will elsewhere talk about murder isn't just simply the, the sinful act of taking another person's life or unlawful taking of life, but he talks about hating a person in your heart. You shall not commit adultery, looking with lust in your eye, stealing, not even once, not ever. You shall not bear false witness. You've never, ever misrepresented another person's position, ever. 
Whatever it means to love your neighbor, certainly it must mean helping your neighbor. But he did it in a perfect way, in a complete way. He never, ever broke the commandment. We know that Paul kept the rules. Paul wrote that he was blameless or faultless in keeping the externals of the law, that he observed the rules. And this is what he thought until he realized the implication of the law, it says in the book of Romans, about covetousness. Paul writes that I thought that I was blameless concerning the externals until I discovered something concerning the commandment that says you shall not covet. And all of a sudden my heart revealed the truth that I desired something that didn't belong to me. And I realized that I broke the law. And the Bible teaches in James chapter 2 verse 10 that if you're guilty of breaking a single law, then you're guilty of breaking all of the law. The law, like a string of pearls, united if you just literally fall short in one specific area, you become a candidate for the title lawbreaker. So what does the rich young ruler have? Before we talk about what he lacks, let's talk about what he has. Well, look what's obvious. Wealth, youth, power, influence. Well, what's not so obvious? I suspect he has a winning personality. I suspect he even has a measure of humility. I suspect he even possesses sincerity and courtesy, and passion, and courage. This is evidenced by even coming to Jesus with the question. And he has a clean record. The reason why we know he has a clean record, he's already said, oh, concerning the commandments, I've kept them. You're not going to find me guilty of any crimes. And he has a noble goal. What shall I do? What good thing shall I do that will merit eternal life? What does he still need? What is it that he lacks? In part, a sense of his own condition, a sense of his own sin. This rich, self-sufficient, powerful, influential person doesn't have a sense of his own wrongdoing. But it isn't just about wrongdoing. You see, there's a difference between doing something wrong and being wrong. Some of you know the difference. The difference is when you come to grips and you realize that you've said something, that you've done something, that you've participated in something, and you know that that's wrong. It's the difference between guilt and shame. Do you know the difference between guilt and shame? Guilt is when you've done something wrong. Shame is when you realize there's something wrong with me. That's the difference. 
Only a sinner needs a savior. The man's response is remarkable. All these things I've kept from my youth never lied, never cheated, never stole, never misrepresented, always obeyed mom and dad, no sexual impropriety, loves his neighbor. Could this even possibly be true? I'm going to suggest to you just for a moment, in fairness to this man and to the text, Jesus doesn't challenge his response. But rather, Jesus is going to push beyond his response to the next level. He's pushing beyond his response to the next level, particularly for the person who might be entertaining the, the notion, I'm fine, there's nothing wrong with me. In verse 21, Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, it doesn't mean never, ever, ever having made a mistake. It means complete. It means not without fault or sinless. It means fulfilled, genuinely pleasing to God. In this context, I'm going to suggest to you, Jesus, when he says, if you want to be approved, if you want to be genuinely pleasing to God, Go, sell what you have. Give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. You'll notice that this young man says, what is the singular thing that I lack? Jesus is going to give him five things to do. Number one, go. Number two, sell. Number three, give. Number four, come. Number five, Follow me. Remember what the question is. What good thing must I do to have eternal life? He doesn't yet know even what that means. Do you know what it means? To have eternal life? In John chapter 17 verse 3, this is what Jesus says. And this is eternal life. That they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus defines eternal life in John chapter 17 verse 3. Not simply in terms of living forever. But of loving forever and being known by God and knowing God forever. Eternal life is not something you inherit. It isn't something that you do. It's not an achievement that you accomplish. So why then does Jesus say, liquidate your earthly assets, give it to the poor, generate heavenly assets, and then he issues the invitation, come, follow me. In Mark's gospel, chapter 10, verse 21, we're given an added insight that is truly remarkable. In Mark's gospel, chapter 10, verse 21, I want to encourage you, either make a note or go there if you have a Bible. In Mark's gospel, chapter 10, verse 21, it says, Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, 
one thing you lack, go your way. Sell whatever you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. In Mark's gospel, when it says he looked at him and he loved him, you might be tempted to Gloss over that or explain it. Well, true, true. You know, it's Jesus loves everyone. I mean, after all, remember, Jesus loves everybody. But the expression is highly unusual in this context because the Bible doesn't say this about Jesus often. It doesn't say in looking at a particular person he loves him. Peter, in telling the story to Mark, must have remembered the tenderness, the affection, the love, both in his voice and in his eyes and in his demeanor. There must have been something about this young man that was so lovable. And Jesus knew the outcome. Jesus knew what was going on inside of his heart. Jesus knew how this was going to end. Jesus knows that he's going to reject the offer. Jesus knows he's going to forsake the adventure of a lifetime. The reason why I find this so impressive is why care? Why should Jesus love him? Why does he even make the emotional investment? You almost want to say, don't do it, Jesus. He's not going to come. He's not going to follow you. He's not going to to accept you. He's going to reject you. But the love of Jesus is genuine. It's genuine and sincere. And genuine and sincere love is willing to give tough advice because it's true. The love of Jesus isn't superficial. It it isn't insincere. Some of you might be thinking, wait, I I thought the Bible says you could come just as you are. You can. You can come just as you are. But you have to be willing to admit that there's something wrong. That there's something wrong inside of your heart. There is a sinful circumstance. You must repent. One Bible writer says, not even for one whom he loved and whose discipleship he desired would the Lord lower the demands of discipleship to make an easy convert, unquote. Jesus says... I love you. You say, let me keep what I have. Jesus says, I desire that you follow me. You say, I can't go where you're going. I want to keep what I have. Jesus will not let this man keep what he has. 
Because there's something on the throne of his life other than Jesus. And you might think, yes, Jesus demanded the rich young ruler give up his riches because they were keeping him from following him. And that would be right in part. You might be thinking, well, that's not true about me. I'm not rich by any stretch of the imagination. My riches aren't keeping me from Christ. I really don't have anything. What do you have? Jesus demanded the man give it up. What do you have? You have a, at least one thing that this young man has. His sin. You have to be willing to turn it over to Jesus. What do you have? False gods. What do you have? A powerful position or possessions or passions. Jesus isn't interested in sharing the throne of your heart with anyone else. With anything else. And for a split second, the universe seems to come crashing down on this young man's head. Time stands still. All eyes are on him. Put yourself in that place. Go back in time in the text. Look at Jesus. Look at the disciples looking at him. Now cast your, your eyes on him. See him on the road. See him at the feet of Jesus. See his heart pounding. See his mouth dry. He knows that Jesus is no ordinary rabbi. He's made extraordinary claims. He's making extraordinary demands. There's something pleading in his heart. There's something insisting that, that, there's, that Jesus is the missing puzzle in his life. And the adventure of a lifetime... Stands right before him. Can you imagine? Jesus issues a personal invitation. Come with me. Whatever your life was going to be. Whatever your life used to be. Whatever you wanted your life to be. Come with me. Follow me. Can you imagine what's going through his heart? What should I do? What should I do? His head is screaming. His heart is torn. What about the money? Follow him. What about the title? Follow him. What about my family? Follow him. What about my future? Follow him. But there's so much. There's so much. I have so much land. I have so much money. I have so much inheritance. All that my family and their family worked for. Everything, everything. You're asking me to surrender it, to give it away, to throw it away. I don't know. I'm not sure. I need time. And look at verse 22. But when the young man heard that 
saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The key word is sorrowful. Matthew, by the way, will record that exact same word later in the gospel. Do you know where? Matthew chapter 26, verse 38. His new use of the term will go fast forward into the future that Jesus has in a garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will say, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Stay here and watch with me. This isn't just some sort of depression. This isn't, and and again, this is not to trivialize or minimize fear or feelings or depression. This is the kind of sorrow that seems to break your heart and cause your whole world to come crashing in on you. You know what's interesting about the text? There's no argument. There's no appeal. There's no request for exceptions. The text doesn't say, Jesus, can we talk about this? Jesus, what do you mean by that? Jesus, what do you really have in mind? All that wealth must have sat on his soul like a weight, like a ton of gold. But in reality, the young man had no wealth whatsoever. He didn't own anything. It all owned him. It controlled him. His heart was deceived and trapped and encumbered. He's overcome with sorrow. For him, it's possessions and money. For him, it's possession and money, and then all that possession and money promises. But we are making a serious mistake if we limit the man's sorrow simply to the retention of his possessions. Jesus isn't simply asking him to give up his possessions or even benefit the poor. But that's the radical realization that Jesus is Lord. That there's, He's calling him not just to a realization about his identity, but a revolution about his future. It meant surrender to Jesus. It meant A refusal to allow anything to stand in his way. And the rich young ruler was tested in possessions. But your test might be surprisingly different. Your test, whatever your test, it becomes that which you are unwilling to surrender. Unwilling to Surrender self-control, pleasure, ambition, addiction, fill in the blank, anxiety, religious background, failure. What is it that's crowding out your heart? What is it that's possessing your soul? What is it that sits entrenched on the throne of your heart? Unbelief, despair, the request that Jesus makes brings the truth to light. The young man loves his riches. 
the young man relied on his possessions. He loved them. He wants God's blessing. But he doesn't want God. He wants eternal life. But at what cost? The cost is always the same. Everything. Jesus wants everything. He wants everything. But he extends the invitation. Look in verses 23 through 26. It says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. The emphasis of Jesus is not on temporary prosperity or wealth or accumulating assets. You know what is one of the most damaging things that is rarely taught from the pulpit? Do you realize that about one-sixth of the New Testament is devoted to warnings about riches? Don't love it, Luke 16. Don't think it'll last, Jeremiah 17, 11. Don't think it can save you, Psalm 37. Don't serve it, Matthew 6. Don't envy those who have it, Exodus 20. Don't hoard it, James 5, 3. Don't be foolish with it, Proverbs 17, 16. Don't think it can compensate for turmoil. Don't rely on it. Don't think it can buy God's blessings. Don't use it for fraud. Don't oppress people to get it. Don't steal it. Don't give special honor to those who have it. Don't Use it dishonestly. Don't use it for evil. Don't extort it. Don't be greedy with it. Don't worry about it. And I have just scratched the surface. Jesus says in verse 24, and again I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Some people call this the parable of the impossible. Some people want this to say exactly the opposite of what it's saying. When Jesus says, well, you know, the camel and the eye of a needle, it doesn't mean not possible. It just means really, really hard. He actually gives us the answer at the end of verse 26. Remember what he says, with men this is impossible. He's already said, what I'm trying to do is give you an illustration of that which is under normal circumstances impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Giving an open door to the reality that you can be rich and go to heaven. But what is happening when he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? Is this like a real camel? And is this like the kind of needle that you use to sew cloth? And I'm going to suggest to you that that's exactly what it means. The way that you get a very wealthy person or the way that you get a camel through the eye of, a, of the needle is you have to create a camel smoothie. You have to take that camel and put it up in a place where all of its camelness can be liquefied. It's fairly easy to pour the camel through the eye of the needle. But it's going to... It's going to create some difficulty. We've all heard countless sermons on the subject of wealth. 
Like I said, one-sixth of the New Testament is devoted to warnings about wealth. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, But those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. The very next words in context says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. In verse 25 it says, But when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? And the disciples find themselves blown away by the teaching of Jesus. They had entertained the false theology that riches were a sign of favor and blessing. And Jesus says that wealth isn't always favor and blessing. Sometimes it can be a handicap. Jesus suggests that the privileged are underprivileged. And the underprivileged are privileged. How? Because there is a great temptation to trust wealth. And in verse 26, it says, but Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. In what sense? In the sense of what this young man is being told and how he responds. The vast majority of people will respond exactly how the rich young ruler responded. They'll find a reason not to go with Jesus. G. Campbell Morgan wrote, One thing thou lackest, lack it no longer. I like that. Because if you lack Jesus, lack him no longer. What is it that you lack? What is it that you need? What's going on inside of your heart? Do you lack his favor? Do you lack his approval? Do you lack his assurance? You see, the rich young ruler, by rejecting forgiveness, accepted condemnation. By rejecting Jesus, he accepts wrath and condemnation and judgment. By holding on to this life, he lets go of eternal life. Let me ask you a different question. What do you suppose happened to him? Do you think he ever came back? Do you think he ever changed his mind? Do you think he was ever given another chance? We're not told. Text doesn't tell us. Jesus is asked by the people, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus says in John chapter 6, this is the work of God. That you believe in him. Whom he has sent. Jesus boils this down to him. Human beings were designed for good. Damaged by evil. 
but destined for a different future in Christ for those who will know him and love him. But if you continue to trust something other than Jesus, then you need to be prepared to be bitterly disappointed. It doesn't have to end that way. You can love him. You can trust him. You might even be wondering, well, he says to the rich young ruler, come and follow me. Does that still apply to me? Is the same invitation available to me? Jesus said, even to the unbelieving religious leaders, he said to them, unless you believe that I am who I say that I am, you will likewise perish in your sins. Jesus said, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's a promise for you. You just have to embrace it. So what is it that you lack? What is it that's keeping you? You should probably pray right now. You should probably look deep in your heart and ask that question. And then look to the Lord for an answer. I'm going to pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you will reveal what's going on inside of each and every person's heart. Lord, I pray for that person who needs to know the truth about Jesus. Lord, I pray that they would respond to the invitation to come and follow me. Lord, I pray that they would be willing to concede that they were designed for good, but that they were damaged by evil, but that Jesus has made a decision that we can be saved, we can be redeemed, we can experience forgiveness and love and hope by fully and completely trusting Jesus as our Savior. That it's not about a church that we go to, or even a set of circumstances that we adhere to or things that we try to accomplish, but to fully and finally trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray for that person. I pray that they would open up their heart and pray a simple prayer like this. Heavenly Father, come into my life. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm holding on to things that have no business and that don't belong in my heart. Lord, I want you to sit on the throne of my heart. I want you to have control, not just to lead me and guide me, although I want that. I want you to be the forever king, sitting on a forever throne. That's my life. I want to turn from my sin, and I want to honor you, and I want to walk into the future that you have planned for us. So, Lord, we commit those things to you and we pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, I want to see you after the service. Let's stand. Here's my heart.